Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. And I also have a blog. I haven't been writing in that recently. I think my last posting was in March of 2021, just before the Austin oral argument. And then I transitioned into the podcast format. But you can check that out if you'd like. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. Calm. All right, today is March 1st, 2022, and this is my 100th episode. I started this podcast in early March of 2021, so I'm coming right up on one year with the podcast format. And uh, wee bitty milestones like my 100th episode don't really get me all juiced up. It's uh, just another episode. But it did cross my mind to use this 100th episode to talk about Coach K's career. And if you've been following the podcast that I played for Duke in the early 80s, I was a freshman Coach K's first year. And then I went from a walk-on to a full scholarship player and then a team captain under Coach K. And I'm going to be at the UNC game on Saturday, his final game in Cameron. And I had intended to get an episode or two up before that game. And I still intend to do that just to talk about my perspective on Coach K's career. And it really is bigger than basketball, the way that I I look at it now with the benefit of 42 years of hindsight. And I judiciously indulge nostalgia, but I have to confess that I have had an emotional response to this game coming up on Saturday, Coach K's final game at Cameron Indoor Stadium. And I have a long-term and special relationship to Durham and Duke and Duke basketball. And I'm going to share some of my thoughts on that here in the next episode or two. But today, I want to talk about a forum that was held at the Aspen Institute last Friday, February 25th. And the Aspen Institute is a think tank organization. They have done a series on the future of college sports. I think this series originated maybe in 2018, 2019. And since that time, Aspen has held a number of forums relating to college sports. And the forum last Friday was on athletes as university employees. And the way that this discussion was structured, Bob Bowlesby, the commissioner of the Big 12 Conference, was invited on to speak. And he had a one-on-one with John Solomon, who was the moderator. And uh, Solomon's Q&A with Bowlesby went on for a little over a half an hour. And they took some questions from the audience. And uh, after Bowlesby, there was a a 30-minute panel discussion. And the three participants were first uh, Michael McCann, who is a law professor at Franklin Pierce Law School in New Hampshire. And he writes prolifically for Sportico. I think he's their senior uh, legal analyst. Then we had Michael Shu, who is a former regent in the University of Minnesota system. And he has been uh, an advocate for athletes' rights for a number of years. And in November, he filed a charge with the 
National Labor Relations Board that challenged the classification of college athletes as non-employees. And he really accepted the invitation of Jennifer Abruzzo, who is the NLRB's general counsel. And she issued a memo back a few months ago that I've talked quite a bit about. I think it was actually in late September, September 29th, I think. And uh, in that memo, Ms. Abruzzo said that athletes are indeed employees and that the NCAA and all of its members have been misclassifying athletes as non-employees and specifically as quote-unquote student athletes. And she took umbrage at that term and said she wasn't going to use it because that was the misclassification issue. This propagandized notion of the student-athlete, which means athletes can't be employees by the very definition of the student-athlete. And that brings in amateurism and the collegiate model and the American model and all those things. That that is a violation, an independent violation of the National Labor Relations Act. So Mr. Shu has filed this charge. We don't know what's going to happen with it. And then the third panelist was Maddie Salamone, and she's an attorney. She's an athlete's rights advocate. She was a college athlete at Duke University, and she also was the chair of the National Student Athlete Advisory Committee and has some interesting insights on how uh, students may be thinking about some of these issues, including athletes as employees. And I'm going to focus on Bowlesby's comments. I'm going to talk a little bit about a couple of things that came up with the panel. But this is really about looking at how the powerful in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and decision makers are struggling to articulate a rational path forward in the aftermath of 2021, and in particular, the summer of 2021. Bob Bowlesby is one of the most powerful people in all of college sports. As a Power Five conference commissioner, he is at ground zero of status quo interests. And the Power Five conferences, and specifically the Power Five conference commissioners, have really been driving the direction of college sports with an obvious emphasis on football because that's where the big money is. And these conferences exist because of the aggregation of football power through conference realignment. But Bowlesby's, uh, he's a, a key decision maker. And one of the things that I found really interesting about this discussion is that the way that Bowlesby presented himself and his thinking, you would have thought that he was an outside observer, just a critical analyst of the business of big time college sports and the regulation of college sports. And this uh, issue of the possibility of athletes being employees. If you didn't know that Bob Bowlesby was one of the most powerful people and decision makers in all college sports because of his role as a Power Five Conference Commissioner, you could very easily have listened to this forum and come away with the impression that he was just uh, commenting on these issues from above, the omniscient voice, as he's just looking down and, and commenting on these important issues in college sports with a sense of disinterest and neutrality. So what I did was I, I made a transcript. I created a written transcript of Solomon's discussion with Bowlesby. And it's really interesting when you hear something, you process it in 
real time at the time you're hearing it and you develop certain impressions. And some of the rhetorical devices that Bowlesby employed, I think were pretty effective in creating the impression that he really wasn't responsible for any of the mess that college sports is in right now. And then the other thing I think that you might take away, again, if you don't know who Bowlesby is and the role that he's played and you just hear this, you may think that Bowlesby is really sensitive to the needs of the athletes and is on board with the possibilities of transformative change in college sports that could completely change the relationship between the laborers, in this case, primarily, in my judgment, the revenue-producing athletes in football and men's basketball, and the beneficiaries of that labor, just like the Power Five conference institutions and the conference entities and people just like Bob Bowlesby, who's making $4.4 million a year off of the labors of football and men's basketball players. But when you read the transcript, you see that Bowlesby was not responsive to most of Solomon's questions. And he also then, after making it appear as if he was supportive of a perhaps a different kind of relationship between the revenue-producing athletes and the universities, he pivoted right back to the same talking points and the same gloom and, and doom, the sky is falling if we go this route, advocacy that he employed during the name, image, and likeness debate, and specifically in his testimony to the United States Senate on February 11th of 2020, when he came outright and said, college sports is not a vocation and athletes are not employees. I want us to hold on to that comment. I used that a couple of episodes ago when I was talking more broadly about these labor issues, and I had a montage at the beginning of the episode with all these comments from in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, powerful in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, and even United States senators saying athletes cannot be employees. That's the line in the sand they're going to draw. They're going to fight on that hill. They're going to die on that hill. You would never have gotten that impression from Bowlesby's comments last Friday. And because of the detached way that Bowlesby talked about these issues and the broader regulation of college sports, I really want to focus on the, the central question that plagues college sports right now and was really the impetus for this podcast. And that is, who the hell is in charge? In February of 2022, who is in charge of the regulation of college sports? It apparently isn't Bob Bowlesby. It apparently isn't the Power Five commissioners. It apparently isn't the university presidents. And the way that Bowlesby and other stakeholders, powerful decision-making stakeholders, talk about the regulation of college sports, that question comes up again and again and again. And the answer is, we really don't know. And so much of what's happening right now is going on behind the scenes, particularly after this constitutional makeover. And this devolution down of substantial authorities, particularly with respect to infractions and enforcement, from the NCAA national apparatus down to the divisions. And we haven't heard boo from this Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee. The new constitution was ratified on January 20th, so it's five weeks ago. The co-chairs of that committee said that they were going to be meeting weekly. And working hard because they were on the clock trying to get all these new authorities in place and all the, the governance issues squared away by August of 2022. And Bowlesby didn't talk about it and it, it just didn't come up. That's important because we're in a power vacuum right now and we don't know who is in control of college sports at the voluntary regulatory level. And 
Bob Bowlesby certainly uh, didn't seem eager to talk about that, and he presented himself as if he certainly wasn't in control. And admittedly, he's not on the Transformation Committee. I don't think he was on the Constitution Committee either. I'm pretty sure he wasn't. But he sure as heck should know what's going on in that Transformation Committee because that is a Power Five show. And the committee's comprised of a majority of Power Five representatives. And I talk quite a bit about that in my series on the evolution of this Constitution Committee and the Transformation Committee. But I think that's one of the most important questions in college sports right now. And one of the reasons that you're having forums on the future of college sports through the lens of external regulatory threats, because the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are in disarray. It appears to me they're in disarray. And there may even be disagreement among and between the Power Five in terms of how we're going to be moving forward at the decision-making level, at the policy level, at the legislation level, under this new Division I Transformation Committee. And that was expressed itself in this divide, I think, over expansion of the CFP. And you have the ACC, Big Ten, Pac-12 on one side, apparently, and then you have the SEC, Big 12 on the other, perhaps. It's not clear where the Big 12 sits in that. <laughs> and we didn't get much uh, on that from Bowlesby. So I'm going to talk about these issues within the four corners of how they were framed. And I also want to say this. I think John Solomon did a phenomenal job as the moderator. He asked some really good questions. And when I went back to the transcript and I looked at some of these questions, I'm thinking, damn, this is pretty good stuff. And Bowlesby sort of bobbed and weaved and, and, and got away with some misdirection. And I think Solomon came back around uh, a couple times to some follow-up questions that really tried to get Bowlesby to speak more specifically on some of these issues. And he really, I think, kind of dodged. And again, with the limitations of the format, and Solomon only had 30 minutes, so he couldn't do a thorough and sifting cross-examination. And I think when you're dealing with people like uh, Bowlesby or Mark Emmert, and you're interviewing them or, or cross-examining them, Emmert testified in the O'Bannon case. I'm not sure if he testified in Austin, but I read his trial testimony, and he is a master dissembler, and he is uh, evasive in a way that's really frustrating. And, and he speaks with a certitude that makes you think he's saying something of substance. But when you read the transcript, there's not a whole lot of there there. Bowlesby's a little bit different because he speaks in generalities, and he's really good at making it seem like he's being responsive, but he is vague and then pivots to something that is really a talking point. And he used that tactic again and again in response to Solomon's questions. So let's start with the very beginning of this interview. And as I go through it, I'm going to be incorporating information from other documents and from Bowlesby's testimony on February 11th, 2020. So Solomon starts with a broad question. He says, I'm going to start by looking at the big picture of college sports. Obviously, it's a very chaotic moment right now. The industry continues to face disruption. From your perspective, how did we get here? How did this enterprise, whose stated mission is integrating athletics and higher education, veer so far that there's now this very real threat that athletes may become employees? Bowlesby says, it's a complicated answer. It can't give you a short answer. And it's true. That's fair. And then he goes back to do a little history lesson and how I think values started to get distorted with the television era in the 1950s. True. Can't disagree with that. And then he says something that I think is also true. So Bowlesby, again, this is part of the, the tactic. He says some things at a very broad brush level that are that you can't really disagree with. 
But when it comes to uh, the specifics of those general statements, he winds up pivoting back to talking points that are friendly to the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries' goals and priorities. So he says, I think the short answer is really, we have been too often inconsistently aligned with what we say our principles are. We say it's all about education. We said it's all about the student athletes. So we say it's about the curricular aspects of college athletics, and yet we do things. And it's not too tough to come up with examples. And then he talks about coaching salaries. Coaches are the highest paid employees, men's basketball and football coaches, are the highest paid employees in the university, if not the entire state in which the institution resides. That's just one example. And then he says, we have misalignment with our stated principles and our actions. And and I guess when you hear that, it would be easy to make more out of it than is really there. And it could be viewed as a bombshell that the Bob Bullsby saying that we're really not about education. It's not about the student athletes. It's about the money and the coach's money and all that. That's a pretty obvious statement if that was his intention. But I think the language that he chose was purposeful. And what he said is exactly what Bob Gates said as a justification for the Constitution Committee. It's part of the lingo now. This notion of a misalignment between the values and the structure of the governance model and the business model. And remember, Gates' bottom line there was that the NCAA was in a fight for relevance. But that kind of characterization is in system now and part of the lingo. So I don't think Bowlesby was taking a big risk by speaking about it on those terms. And then Solomon gets right to the heart of it. And this is where we really start to see Bowlesby taking a, a pivot here. And Solomon says, so let's just say college athletes do become employers. That's uh, not what you want them to become. Correct. So that's a pretty direct question. Do you want these guys to be employees or not? And then Bullsby goes on kind of a rambling response that doesn't answer the question. And he says, you've made the point, I think appropriately, that the environment's changing. And I've been at this a long time. I've never seen such a litigious environment. So right, he's just trying his hardest not to just chomp at the talking points bit, but it's right there. The litigious environment, this besieging and frivolous litigation, which was the code phrase from the NCAA Board of Governors in 2020, when they were justifying their engagement with Congress to shut down the athletes' rights movement. And eliminate federal courts as external regulatory threats. And then so many interested parties, elected officials, and we got these elected officials, all these judges and and congresspeople and legislators. And then he goes on to talk about some stresses in higher education more broadly. And he then goes into some issues he sees at the governance level, at the institution with boards of trustees. And he says this, The other thing that I see that is troubling to me is more and more you see boards of trustees and boards of directors act like ownership groups around the athletics program. People who are otherwise measured, thoughtful, insightful individuals lose their minds around college athletics, and it is not a healthy trend. And then he says, so all these things... I think have contributed to where we currently find ourselves. So he didn't answer the question. He pivoted to some talking points. And then he throws in this thing about governing boards at the institutional level. And and that is a problem. Some people think, some people perceive that a lot of the governing boards at the institutional level have been loaded up with athletics-friendly interests. And there's some dissonance then between the faculty and the board of trustees, for example. And, And that's an important dynamic. But that 
is an issue that is the product of the institutional drive to be in the big time college sports sweepstakes. That's not an athletes as employees issue. That's an institutional greed and self-control issue. And what he's saying is that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries at the institutional level can't help themselves. They are crazy. And that is playing out right now in this nil market and the transfer market. All the things that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and the college presidents and these people that are testifying in Congress say are a problem have absolutely nothing to do with greedy athletes. And later on in this discussion, Bowlesby pulls the old, oh, look at all the wonderful things that these guys get, and they're lucky as they can be, and they just need to sit down and shut up. That's the implication that I, I draw from that. And nobody's talking about the fact that the reason that we're even having a discussion about athletes as employees is because the institutions can't help themselves, and they insist on the most professional product in football and men's basketball that the market can bear. So someone listening to this forum, they hear Solomon's question, a pretty clear question, yes or no, do you think athletes should be employees? And then you hear Bowlesby's response, which was completely non-responsive to that simple question. And he throws in all this window dressing about the dynamics in higher education more broadly. And then these trustees and yeah, I think it's appropriate to, to talk about these things. You could come away with the impression that he suggested that his answer to Solomon's simple question was yes, or perhaps when the truth of the matter is the answer is no. Hell no. And maybe it would have been nice if Solomon had used that quote from Bowlesby's testimony in 2020, on February 11th of 2020, under oath in the United States Senate, where he said college athletics is not a vocation and student athletes are not employees. And the reason that statement is so important in the context of that hearing in 2020 is that the purpose of that hearing was to explore the possibility of name, image, and likeness benefits. And the NCAA and all their in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and minions, just like Bob Bowlesby, said, no, we don't want to go there. But if we go there, there have to be some specific guardrails built around this. And one of them is that athletes can't be employees. But that issue has absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness, because that market, by its very definition, can only exist between the universities and third parties, not between the universities and the athletes. And the absurdity of that ask wasn't on the table until 18 months later, after that February 2020 hearing, when on June 9th, in a hearing, in, June 9th, 2021, in a full hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee, when the NCAA and Power Five were begging for last-minute preemption a couple of weeks before the July 1st deadline when the state nil laws were going into effect. Hawaii Senator, Democrat Senator Brian Schatz specifically asked Mark Emmert about that, and Emmert bobbed and weaved, and then he went to a law professor. Actually, it was Michael McCann who testified at that hearing and who was also on this Aspen panel, and just asked him straight up, what does this student-athlete-can't-be-employees issue have to do with name, image, and likeness? And wouldn't that be a consequential massive change. And uh, Professor McCann said, yeah. And he tried to soften it by all, all due respect to you, Dr. Emmert. But this it really has nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. And it is a massive, massive ask. So you had Bowlesby making all of these audacious arguments and asks in his uh, campaign and engagement with, with Congress in 20. 20. And now he's going to entertain the possibility that athletes could be employees? No, he's not. And then there's another important reason that 
Baba Bowlesby can't say with any credibility that he would even entertain the possibility of athletes and employees. And that is that as of the day that he was sitting for that panel discussion last Friday, February 25th, the Big 12's lobbyists and lawyers are working behind the scenes aggressively to get Congress to adopt legislation that would make it impossible for athletes to be employees. So, and this is from a first quarter 2022 filing for the last quarter of 2021. And this is from one of the three lobbying firms that the Big 12 Conference has employed since, I don't know if it was late 2019 or early 2020 to push for legislation that would end the athletes' rights movement. So in one of the disclosure reports for one of their lobbyists, they describe their lobbying activity as, let me see, how did they do that here? Okay. Issues related to developing a national solution to preserve the unique model of amateur college athletics while modernizing the system to increase economic opportunity for all student athletes on issues surrounding their name, image, and likeness, including S-414, Amateur Athletes Protection and Compensation Act of 2021. And I talked about that bill a couple of episodes ago when I was speaking broadly about these labor issues. And in that bill that nobody's talking about, nobody's talking honestly about what's in these bills that Bob Bowlesby's lobbyists are pushing for. And you have to believe if Bob Bowlesby is a commissioner of the Big 12, he knows Sure as heck what his lobbyists are doing, what bills they're supporting, what bills they are opposing. And in this case, they identify one bill, and it is a bill that many of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, including the NCAA and Power Five, have been pointing to as a template for federal legislation. And Section 5 of that bill, titled Employment Matters, says... This, notwithstanding any other provision of federal or state law, an amateur intercollegiate athlete shall not be considered an employee of an institution of higher education, a conference, or a national amateur athletic association. Based on the amateur intercollegiate athlete's participation in intercollegiate athletic events or amateur intercollegiate athletic competitions. That, that That is a broad slam dunk athletes can't be employees provision. That language is not limited to the athlete's potential status as employees through any name, image, and likeness payments. It is a flat out prohibition on athletes being employees for any purpose in any context. So under that provision, athletes cannot be recognized as statutory employees under federal law, whether it's the NLRA or the FSLA. And then in the preemption provision, which I think is designed to shore up the state issues, and this provision would basically take off the table state legislatures as external regulatory threats. And again, this bill is supposed to be about name, image, and likeness, but neither of these provisions have a damn thing to do specifically with name, image, and likeness. These are sweeping powers and sweeping protections. So the preemption provision says this, no state or political subdivision of a state may establish or continue in effect any law or regulation that governs or regulates the compensation, intellectual property rights, endorsement contracts, employment status, or eligibility for an amateur intercollegiate athletic 
competition of any amateur intercollegiate athlete, including any provision that governs or regulates the commercial use of the name, image, or likeness of an amateur intercollegiate athlete. That is not limited to name, image, and likeness. That preemption of state laws doesn't just preempt state name, image, and likeness laws. It preempts any law relating in any way to any law regulation that governs or regulates the compensation, intellectual property rights, endorsement contracts, employment status, or eligibility, including, but not limited to, name, image, and likeness. And that phrase, employment status, what does that mean? It means, I think, that under this preemption provision, any state law that would confer upon these athletes the status of employees would be preempted, would be null and void. And theoretically, that would include not just uh, state labor laws, but also state workers' compensation laws. So this is just a, a massive grab. It is a bold, audacious grab that has nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. And uh, that ties into something that Bowlesby said in response to the next question. So let's see. Solomon says, so let's say athletes do become employees. What do you see as the potential implications, good, bad, or indifferent? <laughs> I'll just give you a Heads up, the good and the indifferent do not appear in Bowlesby's answer. It's all about all the horrible things that are going to happen. He doesn't talk about it with a gloom and doom tone. He's kind of upbeat. But again, when you read it in the transcript, this is just warmed over congressional testimony from 20. 20. And there's some, I have a copy of uh, Bowlesby's written testimony from that February 11th, 2020 hearing in the subcommittee of, of commerce. And some of it is just verbatim from what he said last Friday. But he talks about name, image, and likeness. And well, actually before that, he talks about, well, we were in this for education and we're trying to help 18-year-old adolescents become 22-year-old adults. And we want these athletes to have a good athletic experience and get a good education. I continue to believe that that's what we should be thinking about and doing, and our actions and principles should be headed in that direction. But you know, it's evolving. And then he says, I was deeply involved in the name, image, and likeness activities. And I've come to the belief, <laughs> I've come to the belief that student athletes are entitled to do with their name, image, and likeness what they want. Having said that, I was an advocate for more structure and more guidelines and more guardrails around that, and we didn't get that, which means they didn't uh, get the, any of these bills uh, passed in 2020. But they're still lobbying for them. That's the point. They're still lobbying for the same doggone bills. And I don't know. I've, I've come to the belief. When did that happen? That would be an interesting uh, thing to ask. When, Mr. Bowlesby, did you come to that belief? And why did you come to that belief? And when you say that they should be able to do what they want on name, image, and likeness, what does that mean? And then he kind of pivots right into the gloom and doom and all the parade of horribles. And then he says, and some of the things that we're encountering right now are a result of those kinds of inability to precisely define what this is supposed to be. That is, the sky is falling, and college sports as we know it will come to a fatal collapse because of this unregulated nil market. And so again, he's internally inconsistent here. It's not quite clear what he means by that. But then he pivots right to the talking points. And he says, I think in a general sense, what you'll see is fewer opportunities for student athletes. And that is one of the primary false narratives that the NCAA and Power Five were uh, spinning to Congress, that any money that is given to the people, the revenue-producing athletes who actually produce it, is money that's going to come out of the pockets of Olympic and non-revenue sport 
athlete. So I'm going to talk about that more specifically because he gets into that a little bit deeper here in a little while. And that is so important. That, that's one of the biggest false narratives that has to be addressed because that is really a go-to argument for the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And they've propagandized around that. And the NCAA propaganda website did that by leading the free world to believe that without the NCAA, we wouldn't be able to field any Olympic teams or any Paralympic teams. I've talked about that as well. So he talks about, well, there are going to be fewer opportunities for student athletes. As an example, in college football, many college football teams carry 110 to 120 players. NFL rosters are 53 players. I would expect that those numbers would get much closer together if employee status were granted. And, you know, I... First question that came to my mind is, well, if the NFL can get by with 53 players, why does a college roster need more than double that? And in Division One FBS, you can give up to 85 football scholarships. So we need 40 more players than that? It's silly. It's silly on its face. But he's trying to create the narrative or reinforce the narrative that there's going to be calamity and across the board, athletes are going to lose participation opportunities. And this gives it's uh, right back to Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model. I'm going to talk about that as well a little bit. And, and that's all the, uh, that would happen. All, this, all these horrible things would happen if employee status were granted. And then he says, I think over time you would see men's Olympic sports go away because there's, there are only two sports on most campuses that have generated revenue. The bulk of the revenue, more than 90%, is derived directly and indirectly from football and men's basketball. And so the money's go, only going to go so far. And I think what you're going to see first is men's Olympic sports declining and then women's Olympic sports declining. And at the same time, I think you'll see roster sizing sizes getting small. And that's what he's describing there is really Miles Brand's collegiate model with an emphasis on the Olympic sports, the Olympic sports. They're no longer non-revenue sports. They are Olympic sports. And uh, that transition in language, which occurred about 10 years ago, is really designed to justify the exploitation of athletes in football and men's basketball to fund not only non-Olympic non-revenue sports, but the Olympic sports that now serve as a primary pipeline for our national Olympic development program. And boy, they are all over that talking point. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the reasons that they've been propagandizing their role in the Olympic development program, remember that tagline, Olympians made here. And then Solomon asks some pretty good questions. He says, one argument you'll hear from proponents of athletes being employees is, look, they're already treated like employees right now in college sports, uh, maybe not by the very definition, but that they're getting in that they're getting salaries directly from the schools. But it's clearly not an extracurricular activity. The Pac-12, they did a survey and showed that athletes were working 50 hours a week, and, and that's pretty well understood now. That was consistent with the evidence that came out of the Northwestern case in uh, 2014 when the student athlete got its day in court. So then Solomon asks, so what strategies have been applied so athletes have more balance in their lives and less control by coaches? Or do athletes need to have some kind of negotiating rights and some kind of stronger voice to be able to advocate for themselves? Those are great questions. And Bowlesby really doesn't answer them. He gives this vague sort of, well, maybe. He says, there's certainly a case to be made for that. And we'll find out if that's the direction you're going. And he talks, then he talks about the life of a student athlete. It's not for 
the faint of heart. And he's critical of this ridiculous accountable athletically related activities limit. There's supposed to be a 20-hour limit that's imposed, and it's in the NCAA rule book that athletes are not supposed to spend more than 20 hours a week on athletically related activities, but they have to be quote-unquote countable. And then you get into some of these hair-splitting, ridiculous uh, discussions about what's countable and what's not. And the long and short of that is that athletes just laugh at that 20-hour rule because they're actually putting in 50-plus hours in season and portions of the off-season. And, and Bowl, Bowlesby acknowledges the ridiculousness of that rule, but doesn't speak to the questions that Solomon asked. How do you change it? And how are the athletes going to have enough control in the system to be able to sit down at the table with the people who are demanding the 50-hour work week and say, this is too much, or this is how we want that 50-hour work week to be structured. And these are some of the things that we want taken into consideration. That's not the way it works now. It is a dictator and particularly in football and men's basketball, Power 5 football and men's basketball, these athletes are under the thumb of the coaching staff and they have very little say in their day-to-day lives. And that's a fair question to ask and Bowlesby doesn't want to answer it while acknowledging that the regulatory attempts to pull back on the amount of time athletes are spending on their uh, sports-related activities have been a joke, an absolute failure. And then he goes into his time as a wrestler at Minnesota State and how he worked so hard and all that stuff. And then Solomon gets into a couple of questions that I think are really important and I think well phrased. And Bowlesby just bobbed and weaved on these. So Solomon says, on the size of scholarships, there's such a stark difference between what athletics departments spend on staff and the ancillary items outside of the direct support to the athletes and what they give directly to the athletes. So the University of Texas, one of your schools in the Big 12, in 2019, and this is according to USA Today figures, they have a a database, a revenue and expenditure database. But according to the database, in 2019, Texas spent $240 million on athletics. Of that amount, 36% went towards coaching support staff administrative salaries, benefits, and bonuses. And then of that same number, $204 million, almost 20% of direct overhead for administrative expenses. 13% went for facilities and debt service. And only 6% went to athletic student aid directly going to scholarships. Even though there were far more students than coaches and staff. Why are coaches and administrators and staff, if this is an education enterprise, why are all these coaches and staff people getting paid six times above the rate of athletic scholarship spending? And then Bowlesby goes into the rope-a-dope, and some of what he said, says here just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And he says, well, athletic scholarship aid is limited, and we have headcount sports and equivalency sports. And I think he's trying to say that because of the NCAA scholarship limits, that that's the reason that only 6% of the budget goes to scholarship aid. That doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't answer the question. And then he pivots from that to how the scholarship has evolved over time, and he tosses in what I call the cost of attendance deflection shield. Whenever the NCAA is pressed on some of these economic disparities and the ridiculously limits on the athletics scholarship, and it is an athletics scholarship, 
They come back with all the wonderful things that these athletes get and how much they've gotten in the last eight years and how much they've gotten through the autonomy legislation in 2014. And at the top of that list is the full cost of attendance scholarship. And here's what Bowlesby says. That's something that the autonomy commissioners did about eight years ago was say, we need some control over what we're doing for our athletes. And we'd like the scholarship to be more than room, board, books, tuition, and fees. And that's when we got full cost of attendance. And now due to the Austin mandate, not a unanimous decision by the United States Supreme Court, but the Austin mandate. We have student athletes that are able to receive academic awards of up to about $6,000 a year. And then he goes on to say, and the kids that are truly needy are getting Pell as well, Pell grants. Those are federal grants that have absolutely nothing to do with athletics ability. They're available to all students and they are based on financial need. And you have to have substantial need in order to qualify for a Pell grant. I, It's my belief. I don't know if there are any statistics to back this up, and I don't think this is something that the NCAA tracks, but it's my belief that a substantial majority of the athletes who qualify for Pell Grants, and here we're talking about football and men's basketball, because that's the only context for autonomy legislation. It applies only to the Power Five conferences, and we're talking about the revenue-producing sports and, and Power Five conferences. That's football and men's basketball, and it's my belief that the overwhelming majority of Pell qualifiers are African-American, and in-system stakeholders beneficiaries, just like Bob Bowlesby, talk about these Pell Grants as some wonderful thing that the institutions are giving these athletes. And that's simply not accurate. Mark Emmert uses that false impression in his public comments and in his testimony to Congress. Rebecca Blank did that, the Chancellor of Wisconsin-Madison, when she testified on September 15, 2020, in the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Greg Sankey has made comments like that. This is a talking point that these Pell Grants are this wonderful benefit that these athletes get to stack on top of their athletic scholarship. And they shamelessly leave the impression that it's something that these athletes would not get or be eligible for independent of their relationship to the universities as athletes. And that is a false impression. But I want to real quickly drill down a little bit more on this full cost of attendance propaganda that in-system stakeholder beneficiaries churn out for public consumption. And Bowlesby did it explicitly right here in his discussion about what the autonomy conferences and the commissioners did for these athletes. That full cost of attendance scholarship was a remedy in the O'Bannon antitrust lawsuit. And in Judge Wilkins' injunction, she said that the NCAA and the Power Five could not set a scholarship limit below the full cost of attendance. Schools didn't have to offer the full cost of attendance scholarship, but they could not set a scholarship limit below the full cost of attendance scholarship. And that was the, the case before O'Bannon. And in this white litigation in 2006, which was directed specifically to the cost of attendance scholarship and that the limit set below that violated antitrust laws. The NCAA settled that case and then marched forward. And they said back in 2006, and Miles Brand said this to the National Press Club in 2006, that if these athletes got a penny above the then existing scholarship limit set below the full cost of attendance, that would amount to pay for play. And these athletes would be transformed from amateurs 
into professionals. And that was a line in the sand that they drew and they carried into the O'Bannon litigation. And it was only when it appeared to the Power Five conferences who were defendants in the O'Bannon case that Judge Wilkin wasn't buying all their BS, did they start scrambling for this autonomy legislation in an attempt to get ahead of the game and make it appear as if they were on board with offering athletes more than what the system had offered before O'Bannon. And the autonomy legislation came into place very quickly at or about the time that Judge Wilkins' decision came out, the district court decision came out in 2014. And it is technically true that the Power Five, who were the sole beneficiaries of the autonomy classification and legislation privileges, that they increased the scholarship limit to the full cost of attendance. They never talk about that scholarship, the cost of attendance scholarship, in the context of the O'Bannon litigation and the timing of the autonomy movement in 2014. The truth of the matter is that the Power Five conferences offered the full cost of attendance scholarship with the federal judiciary's boot on the NCAA and Power Five's throats. And when the Ninth Circuit issued its opinion in 2015 after the Power Five offered this amazing benefit, the full cost of attendance scholarship. The Ninth Circuit upheld that component of Judge Wilkins' ruling and said that they were going to keep that created federal mandate in place so that the Power Five and the NCAA couldn't pull it back. And you never hear any of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries talk about that reality and the context in which this full cost of attendance scholarship came into being. And then one more thing about the history of the athletics scholarship is that when the uh, NCAA and the big-time football interests capitulated to the full athletics scholarship in 1956, and Walter Byers has said that at that point, with that scholarship, athletes became professionals because the quid pro quo was the schools offer this aid in exchange for athletic ability and talent and performance. And he said that actually in a deposition in that White case in in 2007, he also talks about it in his 1995 book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, Exploiting College Athletes. And of course, Byers was the NCAA's first and longest serving president or CEO, and he held that position from 1951 to 1987. And in the original athletic scholarship, there was something called laundry money, and it, w- it served the same purpose as the cost of attendance stipend. And it was directed to the sundry expenses, the living expenses that are attendant to college life. And it's pocket change. It's spending money. And it was a fixed sum. It wasn't based on federal financial aid guidelines, but it served the same purpose. And in 1973, as ostensibly a cost-cutting measure, the NCAA eliminated the laundry money component of the athletics scholarship. So from 1973 to 2014, the uh, scholarship limit didn't uh, include basic living expenses for athletes, and it was unconscionable. Yet the NCAA drew a line in the sand and stood behind that line until the Ninth Circuit in 2014 was about to drop a nuclear bomb on them. That's what they perceived. And all of a sudden, it's this great thing that the Power Five are doing for college athletes. If you look at the evolution of the athletic scholarship, the truth of 
this cost of attendance stipend is that it is really a return to prior practice that existed between 1956 and 1973. And before I go on to Solomon's next question, which is a really good one, I think he recognized that Bowlesby was doing the NCAA Power 5 two-step there. But before I get to that, I want to point out something that I think is really important. And that is that when Bob Bowlesby goes through his talking points and weaves them into his responses to these questions that really don't answer the question, he talks about cost of attendance scholarships, for example, and he's in and out of that in 15 seconds. And if somebody listening to this would come away, I think, with the impression that, wow, this is an amazing thing. And these in-system stakeholder beneficiaries really care about these kids. And they're working double time to do everything they can within the limitations of the rules that these people themselves created and have litigated to defend. That, yeah, they're doing the best they can under the circumstances. And gosh, these athletes are so lucky. Look at everything they get. And that comment, that cost of attendance discussion, just falls into the narrative, and there's no response to it. And as I am demonstrating in real time right now to explain the truth of how that scholarship came into existence and the NCAA and Power Five's militant opposition to that scholarship, it could take uh, 30 minutes or an hour. You have to go back and understand the history of the athletic scholarship and the relationship between the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and the laborers. And the NCAA and Power Five do not want to talk on those terms. And in my top 10 of 2021, the, the number one was the games go on. And I talked about all of the things that the NCAA has uh, claimed credit for that either it had absolutely nothing to do with, like the Pell Grant, or it actually opposed and militantly opposed, like the full cost of attendance scholarship. And as with uh, Bowlesby's description of his relationship to name, image, and likeness, and he just said he came to believe that nil was a good thing, he, these people are dragged kicking and screaming to their spiritual awakenings on some of these issues. And in O'Bannon and Austin combined, the NCAA, and to a far less extent, the the Power Five, paid about $450 million in legal fees and settlements and litigated those cases to death over, what is that now, 2009 to 12-year period. 12 years of aggressive litigation funded by revenue from Division I men's basketball players, the overwhelming majority of whom are African-American because all the NCAA's money comes from March Madness. They don't get a penny of big-time football money. They use that money in their war against revenue-producing athletes to try to prevent them from getting a penny above the old scholarship limit that was set below the full cost of attending college. So these amazing benefits that Bowlesby is claiming credit for in the the cost of attendance scholarship and then the education benefits available through Austin, which actually are less than 6,000, Bowlesby rounds up. And those two modest benefits that do not have to be awarded, the cost of attendance scholarship and the Austin benefits are purely permissive. But the NCAA and Power Five spent nearly half a billion dollars to prevent either of those benefits, which it's now uh, claiming credit for, from coming into 
existence. And then the final thing I want to say about this propaganda technique that uh, Bowlesby used in this discussion and that the NCAA Power Five spokespeople have been using for a long time, uh, not just in public comments, but in federal litigation and in congressional testimony. And that is that these stakeholders, these in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, speak only in terms of what the athletes didn't have before. So when they're making their argument about how wonderful life is for these revenue-producing athletes and all the wonderful benefits that they get, they're comparing it to the nothing that they had before, not to their true market value. And that's not a discussion that these in-system stakeholder beneficiaries want to have because it completely changes the, the way that we think about the value of these athletes and their relationship to the institutions. And I think that tactic really delegitimizes the revenue-producing athletes who bear the burden of underwriting this entire college sports industry. And uh, Taylor Branch, a, a civil rights historian who wrote a seminal trilogy on Martin Luther King Jr., he testified at the 2014 Senate hearings when Mark Emmert, and Mark Emmert alone, was making the case for Power Five autonomy legislation. At the very end of the hearing, Branch just said, look, if we're looking to the Power Five to pr solve all the problems in college sports, we got a big problem because they created all of these issues and all of these seemingly uh, intractable uh, problems, unsolvable problems in the relationship between the institutions and the labor pool. And he described the things that Bowlesby was talking about, this cost of attendance scholarship and, gosh, unlimited meals. Unlimited means that before they were limited. And, and a laundry list of other things that they got through autonomy legislation. Branch described those as tips that a waiter might get. And I think that's probably an accurate metaphor. And maybe one of the benefits of recognizing these athletes as employees would be that we would have to actually honestly wrestle with what the athletes are truly worth. And when it comes to power five level football and men's basketball players, I don't think that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries want to have that conversation. So Solomon then goes on, he changes his tack a little bit after Bowlesby's non-response to his prior question. And Solomon says, I think a good case could be made that college athletes today are treated better than, say, in the 1970s, but there are still many unaddressed challenges today. And Solomon says, but I think the issue is the business of college sports never stops. Live sports TV is basically the only must-see TV in America these days. It's so valuable. There's been reports that the next Big Ten media contract reportedly will generate over $1 billion per year, up from $440 million annually. So for every incremental new benefit that's added for athletes, if there's not some way for athletes to negotiate their rights, won't their benefits just continue to pale in comparison to the next TV deal or the next lucrative coaching contract that repeatedly resets the floor? Like in other words, what's the mechanism to continue to increase benefits for athletes? And then Bowlesby says this. This is priceless. He says, well, for athletes at institutions like mine, I think every athletic administrator and every coach would advocate for more benefits for student athletes. Right now, we are limited by our own rules. And I, I just want to stop right there <laughs> because that is just an absurd statement. These athletics administrators and coaches have taken 
to the halls of Congress, to their very powerful megaphones out in the sports media, to argue against extra benefits. And when Bowlesby says, right now we're limited by our own rules, as if he is powerless to change those rules or to advocate for change. And he also doesn't acknowledge that while he's saying this on February 25th of 2022, just a couple, actually just a month earlier, the NCAA put in place a new constitution that, in theory at least, in the way I interpret that constitution, would give the Power Five the ability to do whatever they want to with extra benefits. And he doesn't say that. What he's saying is that we are limited by our own rules. Well, then change the rules, Mr. Bowlesby. Change the rules. But that's not how he's talking about this now. And then he goes on to talk about all these extensive conversations that we've had about transitional health care, which he really misrepresented in my judgment. And, and Matty uh, Salamone, I think, called him out on that in the panel discussion. He paints a very convenient picture of those transitional health benefits. And then he's, he says, we talk about health care, and I think there could be advocacy for a broader array of benefits for student-athletes. But, but, and there's always a but, right now we have 370 uh, NCAA Division I member institutions, and some are large, some are small, some are north, some are south, some are private, some are public. They're all public. They're all over the place. It's not homogenous. And then he says, and frankly, institutions like mine are frustrated that we can't be responsive to the changing needs and student athletes. And he says, and I don't know that that means we would declare them employees, but I think there may be a broader array of benefits that could be available to them if we have the ability to pass rules that would allow us to pay those things. As it is now, we have a limited ability in football to control some of that, and that's through the autonomy classification. But in the other sports, we're subject to the needs and sensitivities of the other 300 Division One members. So Bowlesby is hiding behind the schools and interests that aren't in the uh, Power Five financial sweepstakes and say, gosh, we'd love to do some of this for our athletes, but we just can't. And that is, it's, that's a false statement. It is simply a false statement. They could tomorrow deem their athletes employees at their, uh, in, through their conferences and through the individual institutions. There's nothing stopping them from doing that. There's nothing stopping the Power Five now, through this transformation committee, to offering a much better package of benefits. Will they do it? We, we don't know. But Bowlesby's just doing the same old NCAA Power Five two-step and hiding behind the limitations of the rules that they themselves created. And they are hiding behind the interest of schools that the Power Five football interests have been steamrolling in the governance and regulatory process since the 1970s. And now they own the NCAA regulatory process. They can do whatever they want to do. So this answer simply doesn't pass the blush test. Solomon asks something about the Power Five breaking off from the NCAA or the football product. And what would that look like if, if less than the full range of Power Five schools created kind of a super football conference and broke off? I've talked quite a bit about that, and Bullsby kind of shoots that down. And then Solomon asks an interesting question, and he says, let's just say for the sake of argument that college sports does split apart. And I think he meant that 
these uh, big-time powerful football schools would split off and decide that their athletes are employees, make it professional, perhaps have collective bargaining there. And Solomon says, I argue it's sort of already that way. It's professional. Others don't. And he says, Solomon says, instead, you have a wide-ranging athletic department at some schools, but and they can have broad-based programs. But some varsity sports go away, and club sports become the predominant model for students to play students from other campuses. What do you what do you think about that as a potential model? That's an interesting model, by the way. But So Bowlesby says, well, you still have to fund them. And he says, but athletes at the highest level don't want to play club sports. And then Bowlesby backs into a, an explicit explication of Miles Brand's collegiate model as a financial structure for big-time college sports. So he says, but you still have funding issues. He talks about maybe having separate entities governing separate sports, and that that discussion hasn't gotten a lot of traction. Who knows if it's really on the table? But he says, whatever the model, you still have funding issues because the revenue in the current model from football and men's basketball is funding everything within that enterprise. And absent that, and by that, Bowlesby means football and men's basketball revenue, those sports, and by those sports, he means non-revenue Olympic sports, are likely to go away altogether because there isn't a ready funding source for it. And institutions aren't going to just pony up and say, yeah, we'll stop using the revenues from football games and start using institutional funds to fund a track program or a wrestling program. It just isn't going to work that way. And that is, I think, a really important statement. And I want to talk about that a little bit. And I think this is the last thing I'm going to talk about. There was some other stuff here. But, but what Bowlesby was saying there is a perfect definition of Miles Brand's uh, collegiate model, which he really announced in its full form in his 2006 State of the Association speech. And he said that to justify the maximum exploitation of football and men's basketball, we're going to create this model that requires that money to be sent downstream to non-revenue interests and to Olympic sport interests to increase participation opportunities. And implicit in that, and this is one of the fatal flaws in the reasoning of the Power Five and the NCAA when it comes to that use of the collegiate model. And that is that schools across the NCAA have the ability to generate enough revenue from those two sports to pay for all the non-revenue sports and all the Olympic sports and all these administrative salaries and all the bloated bureaucracies that exist across the college sports landscape. And the fact of the matter is there are only about 50 schools in the entire 1,200 school NCAA system that generate enough net revenue to pay for the uh, downstream beneficiaries. And Mark Emmert testified to that explicitly at the September 30th, 2021 hearings in the House when Linda Livingstone, the Baylor University president, was invoking Miles Brand's collegiate model. She didn't refer to Miles Brand, but she said, if we don't have that money, because it's going to the people who actually generate it, and we can't send this money downstream, then that would be tragic for college sports. And these non-revenue and Olympic athletes would be victims of having that money stay where it is earned. And explicit in that model, as it's been articulated and reinforced since 2006, is that it would be a crime against higher education if those 50 institutions that can afford 
afford to pay for the whole athletics departments through football, men's basketball, if the institution had to pay for any of the athletics-related expenses, and it's called direct institutional support. And that is a bad phrase to the ears of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And there is an uncomfortable racial connotation to that way of thinking. Because the laborers who underwrite all these participation opportunities are uh, largely African-American. And uh, as I have analyzed the collegiate model, I believe that it amounts to nothing more than a massive regressive transfer of wealth or diversion of wealth from black male laborers to downstream and comparatively well-off white beneficiaries. And in-system stakeholder beneficiaries simply don't want to talk about it on those terms or acknowledge the reality of who the actual participants are in this transfer of wealth. But what Bowlesby was describing and what Linda Livingstone was describing in the hearings in September and what Rebecca Blank tried to explain in her September 2020 testimony is that this model is essential. This transfer of wealth and self-sustaining athletics departments is essential to the business of big-time college sports. And what they uh, don't say is that 98% of the rest of the NCAA has to support their athletics programs in whole or in part from direct institutional support and money directly from the general university. And this narrative, this self-sustaining athletics department's narrative has been reinforced over the years. And in, in 2010, the Knight Commission did a, its last substantive report, and it was really on financial issues in college sports. It pivoted away from presidential control and institutional control because it wasn't working. So they started to focus on what they perceived to be the uh, financial impact of all this athletics spending. And one of the key themes in that report was that the out-of-control spending was going to force institutions to have to offer direct institutional support to the athletics programs, and that was going to be an existential threat to higher education writ large. And they said specifically that schools are going to have to decide whether to fund freshman English or the football team. And that was a scare tactic. And it again, it was really presented out of context because the impression of that narrative is that it applies to all 1,200 schools in the NCAA, yet in the sworn testimony of the NCAA president to the Senate just five months ago, that logic, the collegiate model logic and the self-sustaining athletics department can only apply to 50 schools in the NCAA. Yet that has become an unchallenged narrative. And my response to that is there should be some institutional support coming in from the university because then it would force the university to honestly wrestle at a values-based level with whether fielding all these sports really fits in the uh, mission of the university. And that discussion doesn't exist, doesn't have to exist when you have this belief that the athletics department has to be fully self-sustaining. And Stanford University in uh, 2020, it eliminated, I think, 11 sports, and it claimed that it was a cost-cutting measure because of COVID. And 
they said in very explicit terms that they simply could not come up with the money to fund these 11 sports. And they were all non-revenue sports. And they got a lot of pushback from the athletes and alumni connected to those sports. And throughout that discussion, Stanford University, one of the richest universities in the world, not just the United States, claimed that it couldn't come up with a few million dollars to fund 11 non-revenue sports. And then two days after lawsuits were filed, suddenly they find the money. But what's important about the way that Stanford responded to the criticism, the blowback from cutting those sports, was through this ridiculous formulation of the collegiate model that requires that at the highest level that the athletics departments be self-sustaining. So when Stanford was thinking about this issue, it wasn't thinking about the possibility that there could be direct institutional support. They were viewing it through the lens of athletic department revenues, what they were getting or during COVID, what they weren't getting from football, men's basketball. And so when Stanford was saying, we've looked high and low, we just can't find the money. What they really meant is, we can't find the money in our athletics budget under these circumstances. And when they were pushed to the wall by external regulatory threats, by two federal lawsuits, all of a sudden, guess what? They found the money. And I don't think it's had an adverse impact on Stanford University's financial standing or its bottom line. I think they're doing pretty doggone well. And uh, just to close that out, Emmert mentioned these 50 schools and that doesn't include all the schools in the Power Five. And when you get down to the group of five, and I talked about this in my episode on big-time football by the purse strings and the heartstrings, and I went through some of the financial data in the Sportico financial database for college sports, and that only applies to public universities. But I pulled a couple of Power Five schools to talk about the disparity in the money between the Power Five and the group of five. And at that group of five level, you had schools that are really trying to run with the big dogs in college football who had enormous direct institutions institutional support numbers in the pie chart of where the revenue comes in. And then when you get beneath that and you get into lower level division one and all of division two and three, there are no products that generate any revenue. So almost all the athletics department expenses are paid through general uh, operating revenue. And Bowlesby blows through his discussion of this transfer of wealth with the same ease uh, and comfort as he talked about the cost of attendance scholarship. And he just goes right through it and it is unchallengeable. And while we're speaking of wealth, at uh, one point in this discussion, Bowlesby says, look, these coaching salaries are out of control. These athletic administrator salaries are out of control. The conference commissioner salaries are out of control, but there's nothing we can do about it because we uh, operate in the free market. And he said, if you can come up with a way to, we can limit these salaries, I'm, I'm all on board with it. And I just started laughing when I heard that because there's nothing stopping Bob Bowlesby from going to the university presidents who set his salary. All of those university presidents and chancellors in the Big 12 sit on the conference entity. They run the conference entity. They set Bob Bowlesby's salary. And he could say, you know what? This $4.4 million, that's, I shouldn't be making that much money. In fact, look, I should be paid the median salary of all the professors across the Big 12. That's the right number to be consistent with our values. You think that's going to happen? I don't think so. The other thing, is that while Bowlesby's saying that there's nothing we can do, the free market is controlling this, the free market, they want to eliminate the free market for these athletes. And the way that they want to do that, that can't be challenged, is to get an antitrust immunity from 
Congress that will allow it to operate outside of the free markets and free competition laws like antitrust laws. They could be asking for the same protection to limit coaches' salaries or athletics administrators' salaries or conference commissioners' salaries or the salaries of the lavishly paid, grossly overpaid national office executives at the NCAA. And we could have an academic discussion about whether that kind of exemption would actually work and wouldn't be subject to challenge. But we're not having that discussion. And nobody's talking about the audacity of the ask for antitrust immunity that would permit the NCAA and the Power Five to cap the compensation below fair market value for the athletes. And so the attitude of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries is free markets for me, but not for thee. And in that regard, I want to just read something from Bowlesby's written testimony to the Senate in February of 2020. And this ties in to the, the collegiate model as well and this transfer of wealth, which, by the way, the Power Five football interests think shouldn't apply to football money. It only applies to basketball money. And I teased that out a little bit in a couple of episodes ago with the testimony of former NCAA President Miles Brand and then uh, Nebraska Chancellor Harvey Perlman at that 2003 hearing in the Senate where they said, this is all about free markets. We're not sharing our money with anybody. And this is America. And in America, you uh, get paid what your talents bear in the market. And they were just uh, Darwinian capitalism all the way there. But not when it comes to athletes' rights or to the way that the basketball money is spent. And in in this written testimony, Bowlesby talks about the American collegiate model. I'm not sure what what the hell that is, but he says in justifying this transfer of wealth, he says, it is difficult to argue that the American collegiate model is not collectivism in some form. For decades, we have funded broad-based sports programs, including our institutions, Title IX initiatives, on the revenue derived from a few sports. And by few sports, he means uh, football and men's basketball. And then he says, this approach is defensible and worthy of protection because of the multitude of opportunities it creates. And remember, I want to stop right there. Because in this collegiate model diversion of wealth, that can only apply to about 50 schools of the 1,200 schools in the NCAA because only those schools generate enough revenue to fund downstream sports and participation opportunities. So really, he's talking here about the high-level Power Five programs. And then he says, student athletes in a wide array of sports work very hard in the search of excellence. Their labors are neither less time-consuming nor less strenuous than the efforts in football or basketball or baseball. The participants in high-profile sports enjoy the benefits that accrue to those in sports that are adored by the public and coveted by television networks. So (laughs) being adored by the public and coveted by television networks is is adequate compensation for underwriting the entire college sports industry. And then uh, he goes on to say, the current model of athletics funding works because it meets the university's objective of offering a full array of co-curricular opportunities for its students. There's plenty of work to be accomplished, but I advocate that we be thoughtful in our collaboration. And remember, he's talking about this in the context of name, image, and likeness, suggesting that if 
big-time revenue-producing football and men's basketball players get name, image, and likeness compensation, then it's going to result in the fatal collapse of the non-revenue sports and the Olympic movement. Bolsby goes on to say, the potential for harm is present and changes that some assert as inalienable rights also have the possibility to irreparably damage the collegiate model of athletic participation. This model is and has been the envy of the world. I, I mean, that's just breathtaking. Some assert as inalienable rights. How dare revenue-producing athletes ask to be allowed to participate in the same economic freedoms as the uh, coaches and the athletics administrators and the conference commissioners. And this would be uh, irreparable harm to the collegiate model. And then he says, this model has been the envy of the world. No, no. The exact opposite of this model is the envy of the world. The world doesn't envy America for its collectivism. It envies it for its freedoms. And in this ridiculous construction of the business model, the, the operating principle is to take revenue generated by largely African-American laborers and send it downstream to overwhelmingly white beneficiaries who don't uh, make any money. And that is the American way, as Bob Bowlesby is describing it. And Bowlesby didn't author this concept. This is a Miles Brand concept, and it's parroted by all the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. What I would say in that regard, and in the discussion about what college sports is going to look like and the relationship between the institutions and the athletes, is that are we going to err on the side of these indefensible institutional interests, or are we going to err on the side of protecting American principles, American freedoms, American values? That's the ultimate choice here from a regulatory standpoint. And this discussion hasn't been framed on those terms. And uh, I guess before I wrap this thing up, I just want to talk about two things that came up with the panel discussion that I think that are worth mentioning. And one, and this was a point that uh, Michael Shu made, and it's a really important point. And Professor McCann, I think, came around and, and supported that this point. And that is that when you're looking at all the parade of horribles that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries throw out and the hypotheticals that are all negative, how this can't work, they're not talking about how it might work, they're talking about all the reasons that it can't work, that loses sight of the fact that ultimately these decisions on the employment status of athletes, if it is through an external regulatory force, whether it is a federal court, whether it's Congress, or whether it's a federal agency, the law is the law. And the people subject to the law, as the law changes, will have to comply with the law. So all this discussion is really moot. The, the participants will comply with the law. They will find ways to readjust their business model. And it's not that big of a deal. And it goes to this theme that I have been using for a long time in this podcast. And I emphasized in my uh, top 10 of 2021 series, where number one was titled, The Games Go On. And the games go on, even if athletes are deemed employees, statutory employees under federal law. The games go on. And then another thing that came up that I think is consequential, Professor McCann was talking about this Johnson case in the Third Circuit, and that's under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And some athletes are challenging their status under that law. And the schools say that they're not employees for purposes of the FLSA. And the 
athletes are saying, yes, we are. That single question has been certified from the district court to the Third Circuit, and they're going to make a decision here. And McCain was talking about the timing. I talked about that a few episodes ago. And this Johnson case may move along faster than these uh, agency issues on the misclassification of employees under the Labor Relations Act. But uh, Professor McCain was saying that there were some prior challenges, similar challenges in other circuits outside the Third Circuit, and that they had failed, that athletes were not recognized as employees for purposes of the FLSA. But those prior challenges were pre-Austin. And when the Supreme Court issued its Austin opinion in June of 2021, the district court in this Johnson case asked the parties to brief on the impact of the Austin decision, if any, on the issues in the suit. So I think the district court judge may have been looking at this a little bit differently because of Austin. And it remains to be seen what the Third Circuit is going to do. But if the Third Circuit says, yes, that athletes are or could be employees, then you would have what's called a circuit split. And that would be uh, a basis to go to take it to the next level to the United States Supreme Court. But there's also another pathway there. If you have inconsistency here, and Professor McCann spoke about this in, in the context of uniformity, in the absence of uniformity, if Johnson is inconsistent with other federal circuits. And when I heard that, my first thought was, okay, this is another dormant commerce clause issue. And one of the pathways that the NCAA and Power Five could have if Johnson says, if the Johnson court, the Third Circuit says, yes, these athletes are or could be employees, you could see a, a renewed focus on a dormant commerce clause lawsuit based on uniformity. I haven't thought about how that would play out procedurally, but it's my belief that the NCAA, Power Five, and all their high-priced lawyers, they got the best lawyers on the planet, and they have been strategizing not to find ways that they could cooperate with athletes and talk about collective bargaining, but how they can simply steamroll the external regulatory processes to make it impossible for these athletes to be deemed employees. And one way, perhaps, would be a renewed dormant commerce claim on the employee issue. Remember, they... The NCAA and Power Five, I think we're fully prepared to file a dormant commerce clause under the nil issue with all these different uh, state laws going into effect that impose theoretically different requirements. And they had talked about that. They, the NCAA was threatening that right after the state of California started talking about a state nil law. And Seth Waxman, the attorney for the NCAA, in oral argument in the Austin case in the Ninth Circuit, he said that the NCAA still had that option on the table. And that went away, as I've discussed in prior episodes, with the NCAAs losing their last attempt for preemption in the Senate. And then just 12 days later, the, the Austin decision comes out. And I think that dormant commerce clause option really died with it. But this is in an entirely different context with an entirely different issue. And it's on this employee issue. And I think, honestly, at, at, at kind of a gut instinct level, people out in the sports world are less receptive to athletes being deemed employees as they were to athletes having the right to exploit their own name, image, and likeness. So we're going to keep an eye on that. We'll see what happens in this third circuit. But when Professor McCann said that, my, my instinct, my first thought was, wait a minute, I'm hearing a dormant commerce clause issue. All right. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and close this thing out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Thank you.